How did Jeff Bezos realize you could sell anything on the internet? Why did Bill Gates create Control-Alt-Delete? How did Synchronized Swimming prepare Christine Lagarde for international politics? What made Bob Iger bet big on Marvel? And what inspired Diane von Furstenberg to create the wrap dress? On The David Rubenstein Show, peer-to-peer conversations, I uncover the untold stories of the world's most successful leaders. Listen now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to For the Ages, a history podcast presented by the New York Historical Society and hosted by David Rubenstein. Join us as he deftly explores the rich and complex history of the United States with some of the nation's foremost historians and creative thinkers, because history matters. Hello, I'm David Rubenstein. We're in conversation today with Boo Srinivasan about his new book, Americana, a 400-year history of American capitalism. Welcome very much to, to our show today. Well, thank you, David, for having me on your program. Okay. So as you look back on these 400 years, what would you say are the two or three most seminal events which propelled American capitalism forward to the state it is today? At the time, there were some things were very, very important. You know, the discovery of the cotton gin, I think that was a very important discovery in the sense, not in, uh, in terms of in the moral sense uh, or in the economic sense, but in what uh, it did to transform this country. It, um, you know, it coincided with the Louisiana Purchase within by, you know, half a decade or so. And the Louisiana Purchase obviously gave this country the Mississippi Delta, which was the, some of the most fertile cotton uh, land imaginable. And then you have the ability to separate cotton seed from cotton fiber. So that was very seminal. And the second thing would probably be the discovery of uh, the telegraph. You know, that's Morse coming up with not just the Morse code, um, but also coming up with the principle of being able to take electricity and being able to use dashes and, and dots, essentially long, long buzzes versus short buzzes to communicate messages. That was remarkable. And the third thing I would point out is uh, Henry Ford when he announced the $5 workday. And the reason why I think that was a seminal moment uh, is because that's a time when you had, you know, uneducated uh, immigrants come to this country. They were able to get a job at the Ford Motor Company in 1914. The Model T at that time cost $450. And with the $5 workday, you know, uh, you basically could afford a car with 90 days worth of labor, which is just a it, an insane proposition to the rest of the world, thinking that in 1914, someone could work for three months if they were able to save 100% of their money, be able to afford a new car. So that was a, a convergence of uh, consumerism with industrial capacity. It just made this, uh, just shaped the American story in a way. So uh, which two or three or four individuals you may not have yet mentioned, would you say are really responsible for the powerful growth of American capitalism over the last 400 years? Are there a couple individuals you think are most important to cite? Well, when I look at the story, I treat American capitalism as a system. Um, And because of that, I don't think any one individual necessarily shaped it, but there are individuals obviously that are wonderful examples of what is possible uh, with American capitalism. And, and, uh, And one of those is Andrew Carnegie. And Andrew Carnegie came to this country as a child laborer, in uh, the late 1840s, and then eventually gets a job as a telegraph boy, is um, delivering messages and gets discovered by an executive for the Pennsylvania Railroad. And on and on, he becomes, you know, the great steel magnate. And 
1901, J.P. Morgan congratulates them as the uh, richest man in the world. And here's Andrew Carnegie, that all of maybe five foot two, five foot three, this diminutive man, that's the reigning king of steel. So there are these types of stories that exemplify possibilities. Walt Disney, I think that's something that um, probably at the earliest level without using human beings, uh, you know, is able to draw himself and create this intellectual property. So even though it's not necessarily directly related to the, cons- uh, to the computer age, that is probably the first time that you saw large-scale commercial art, if you will, uh, and intellectual property get created and monetized in a very large way. Now, in your book, you cover a lot of prominent individuals, but if you could have interviewed one or two or three of these famous people you uh, written about, who would you like to most have interviewed, and what would you like to ask them if you could ask each one one question or so? I probably would have liked to have interviewed people that have not been documented and that fascinated me in their work. Robert Fulton would be one of them. Um, this is this incredible polymath. This is someone that was obsessed with canals, obsessed with um, you know submarines, all types of things, and uh, it was this incredible, uh, incredible brain, incredible mind. Also, an artist and a sculptor. After that, I probably would like to interview Harriet Beecher Stowe, and I think that she was fascinating and remarkable. And I've always felt that Uncle Tom's Cabin was a more remarkable book than even Huckleberry Finn. And interestingly, primarily because Huckleberry Finn happened after the Civil War and Uncle Tom's Cabin happened 10 years before, um, where people to some degree give her uh, some credit for galvanizing sentiment against slavery. So I certainly would have a lot to talk to her about. And she also remarkably wrote a book called The American Woman's Home. It's this domestic guide that she wrote with her sister. So there'd be plenty to talk about from the early days of... um, Feminism, she herself did not even believe in the woman's suffrage movement. So that would be interesting to talk to her about as well. And, you know, the people that I would look to interview are not necessarily business people, but oftentimes people that, uh, you know, rose against it and, and acted as a check or a balance on the system. Upton Sinclair would be one. John Steinbeck would be one. One of the myths that we often had in the United States, particularly when you're in grade school, you learn this myth. I guess it's a myth. Maybe you can tell me it's not is that people came to the United States or became the United States initially for religious freedom. But you point out in your book that a lot of these things were commercial ventures, that companies were formed to basically come over here and get some wealth and then send it back to the people who had invested in the people who came over here. Can you describe what that was all about? Well, very much so. I mean, if you think about the Virginia company, I mean, that it's a company. It's a company before it's a colony. And you know, you finance that uh, with shareholders. And in addition, anybody that wanted to go to Virginia that wasn't a shareholder could become a shareholder provided that they finished out a seven-year term. And that same structure uh, applied to a lot of the people that came over on the Mayflower. The religious separatists weren't even living in England at the time. They were living in Holland and they'd look to look to, to greater economic prosperity. They weren't necessarily fleeing the king. And in fact, there's a lot of evidence that once they come here, uh, you know, off the shore, uh, off the shores of America, they're there uh, with the Mayflower Compact, where they're pledging obedience to King and God. You know, the, the Mayflower um, was a privately financed venture. It had shareholders. They came over here with a year's supply of food and um, trading goods. Uh, you know, they'd in fact missed the. 
missed their departure by quite a few days while they were negotiating with their financiers for better terms. So there are a lot of things that uh, uh, that made it very very commercial. Obviously, there were some religious motivations as well, but I don't think that that was the large part of uh, the American story, even in the early days. Now, in the first period uh, you're writing about in your book, uh, obviously there's slavery. And if there had not been slavery, do you think American capitalism would have developed much differently or would it have gone pretty much the same way even if we hadn't had slavery? I think that's a very difficult question to answer. I think it's impossible to imagine uh, what would have happened if slavery hadn't existed in America, primarily because cotton was so enormously important to the first half of the 19th century. It was by far America's largest export. 60 to 70% of American exports all the way to the Civil War were a result of slavery uh, and cotton. And at the same time, if you look at America's largest asset, they were slaves. You know, if you think about the 4 million slaves in this country, even the American South, when they were seceding, they had put a value on it at $3 billion. Another state had put it at $4 billion. it was obviously very, very crucial to the development of American capitalism, uh, both in actual export terms, uh, in terms of utilization of land in America, and in addition uh, to what uh, happened with slaves in terms of how they were securitized, because a lot of these slaves were borrowed against, and they were, in, in effect, the monetary base of the entire American South. Let's go to the second period, uh, let's say post-Civil War, up to, let's say, the early part of the 20th century. So uh, the things that you write about that are very significant to the further growth of American capitalism, one of them is oil. Why was oil so important? And when did that really get discovered? Well, oil was discovered much earlier. Even the Indians knew that it had therapeutic properties and would be able to take blankets and, and soak up the oil as it seeped from the ground. The big discovery was how to drill for oil. And that happened in 1859 uh, in Titusville, Pennsylvania. And pretty soon you have a, an oil rush. You have men rushing to the fields um, to, to take, fill up barrels and barrels of oil. And pretty soon you have uh, light in American homes. You know, you have lamps that uh, are, are cheap and abundant. Um, and you have uh, the oil to be able to light, uh, light the homes in the evenings where you don't have to rely on expensive candles. So that certainly was a liberating aspect. And again, it's one of those accidental things. Then you have the automobile. Um, almost a half a century later, and now all of a sudden you have oil that's able to power automobiles. So these are these accidental discoveries that are serendipitous in so many ways and that serve as a catalyst for American development, and oil was certainly one of them. Now, you write about a man named John D. Rockefeller, who was not from a wealthy family, for sure. What did he do to make it possible for him to become the wealthiest man, really, in the history of our country, as measured as a percentage of GDP that he had? What did he actually do? Well, I think John D. Rockefeller was probably the greatest organizer in American history, and especially because it was so early. This was a time when um, corporations couldn't exist beyond their state boundaries. So one corporation in one state couldn't own a subsidiary and enjoy limited liability in another state. So starting from a very young age, you know, he was, I think, 21, 22 um, when the Civil War had started. And he was able to fully take advantage of both uh, what was happening in terms of uh, the economic boom caused by the Civil War, and then slowly stumbled into uh, oil as his primary occupation, primary business. And he'd been this great organizer that had uh, assembled 
refinery after refinery, acquiring smaller companies, making it a small part of a larger whole. And lots of his innovations were really financial organization, um, being able to get economies of scale um, from this very, very rapidly growing industry, but dis- uh, disorganized industry, being able to deal with the railroads and understanding the industrial infrastructure of his day and being able to fully capitalize on that. Now, what about steel? Steel is really not invented in the United States, I guess, and maybe not even perfected initially, but how important was steel to the growth of American capitalism? Well, tremendously so, because the largest industrial asset post-Civil War was railroads and railroad tracks. And railroad tracks built with iron tended to erode very quickly. And steel was this incredibly, obviously, uh, strong metal. And at the same time, it was extremely cost-effective. Steel was also used for buildings. You know, it, it changed the structure of urban landscapes, what you could do with Um, A cast iron building was much more limited compared to what you could do with steel. Uh, So certainly not just railroads, but industrial development, urban development, everything relied on steel. So let's talk about electricity. You point out in your book that electricity came along relatively, uh, I'd say in the first maybe couple decades or so of the 20th century. It wasn't as if everybody had electricity. Uh, When did electricity really get started and who was most responsible for electricity getting uh, created in the United States and developed? Well, certainly, I mean, that, that's been well documented as um, this great battle between Edison and Westinghouse. But again, one of the great forgotten names uh, in electricity is this man named Charles Brush. Um, you know, even in, uh, he was a, somebody that came up with the brush lighting system in Cleveland much earlier than Edison. And in fact, electricity took a while for it to make its way into American homes. Even as late as 1910, the majority of homes did not have electricity. And primarily, uh, the reason for this was in most cities, the gas company was the predominant uh, driver of light in people's homes. So until you saw appliances really take off, there was no reason um, to really switch to electricity just for the sake of evening light. So World War I comes along and the... uh 1916, 17, 18 period of time we got in, 1918, I guess it was. Um, how did World War I affect our capitalism approach? Well, this is the first time when the federal government uh, is able to mobilize so quickly. It's not fighting, first of all, uh, states that it seceded. And it's much larger in terms of its scale than it was at the time of the Civil War. At the same time, it's got this new instrument, the income tax. The income tax had been ruled unconstitutional in 1894, 1895, I think, and eventually had to have a constitutional amendment to be able to to, uh, enact the income tax. So it hadn't been used, but during World War I, it went into full effect. And all of a sudden, the federal government now was able to utilize a new financing mechanism um, and that's what's probably one of the most transformative effects that had carried on after the war. In addition, uh, if you think about something like the radio, uh, this is, again, war spending all of a sudden serves as a catalyst for a brand new discovery where the exigencies of war um, creates the innovative environment for us to come, with, come up with something that um, uh, and utilize something at a much larger scale. So before this, it was really the wireless telegraph was the main use of radio. Uh, But right after that, all of a sudden, uh, it was discovered that you can also have sound travel through uh, radio wires. 
and um, much more efficiently. Was, you know, there were already uh, ideas floating around prior to the war, but it really became uh, commercially viable right after the war. Let's skip forward to World War II, obviously, is a major effect on the United States and capitalist system. But what was the impact of the automobile on the country? You mentioned Henry Ford, but automobiles became much more prevalent, I guess, after World War II. Is that right? No. First of all, before World War II, even in the 20s, uh, you know, the automobile had fully taken over this country, you know, by, um, you know, one of the examples that I point out in the book is the uh is Steinbeck's use of the Jode family traveling across the country in their own jalopy. You know, the idea that a poor family during the Depression would have their own automobile and be able to go all the way to California in their own car is just something that would be unfathomable even today in a place like India or China or Africa. You know, by definition, a poor family does not have a car. Yet, in the 1930s, even in America, it was a very believable tale that the Jode family would have their own automobile. So the automobile was incredibly prevalent. It was very cheap. Um, it didn't cost very much uh, to buy one. And at the same time, uh, the automobile being such a uh, enormously successful consumer product, it's what allowed American industrial capacity, despite the depression, to still be as large and as powerful um, as it was and where it could be repurposed very quickly to make tanks or bombers or armaments um, and all sorts of other things. And, and to, to go in even further, the person that's in charge of uh, you know, war industries is essentially an, an auto man. So the automobile industry was very much uh, vital to the war effort. Uh, and certainly, it wouldn't have been as vital if automobiles weren't as prevalent as they were even prior to the war. Now, you mentioned a couple industries that arose during this period of time, I guess, uh, before the war and World War II, but after World War II, they flourished. They are the radio industry, the television industry, and the cinema industry. How important were these to the growth of American capitalism? Well, radio and cinema were very important even prior to the war. You know, Walt Disney had his uh, great run in the 30s, um, well before the war. He had a great film like Gone with the Wind that is... Um, enormously anticipated, right after Snow White, in fact. And at the same time, ra uh, the radio was a dominant thing in the 20s. You know, um, RCA was one of the most valuable corporations in America, even, even uh, in the 20s. So the television industry is the medium that really took off after World War II and uh, entered American homes very rapidly in the 50s and essentially put a window uh, window to the world inside of American living rooms. So in the fourth period of your book, uh, you talk about a number of things that all of us are probably very familiar with, maybe unlike some of the things you talked about earlier, because we didn't live through some of those periods. But the period in the fourth period of your book, let's go through some of the things you mentioned as being very significant. So computers, how important were computers to the growth of American capitalism? Well, computers are vital. And I think the entire information revolution, obviously, um, we still don't know where that's all headed, um, but it's as substantial and perhaps even more transformative than the Industrial Revolution. But interestingly, computers and computing has its roots all the way, uh, you could trace it back to 1890, and you could trace it back to the U.S. Census. So here's this constitutionally mandated activity where every 10 years um, you have to take a census. And the 11th Census of the United States 
they decided that they were going to count um, uh, count the information using the holler at the machine. And the holler at the machine used these punch cards where you would punch the hole that uh, corresponded with that particular data point, and you would have these electronic counters that counted them. And eventually, Herman Hollerit uh, becomes a uh, a part of a company called uh, CTR, you know, uh, and CTR eventually changes its name uh, to IBM, International Business Machines, and CTR was Computing Tabulation and Recording. Uh, so the catalyst for computing, you can trace it all the way back to 1890 and something as large scale as the U.S. Census. And similarly, I think with computing and the internet as a whole, a large part of this uh, activity has largely uh, been incubated by government spending at the very beginning, either this, uh, the, the space age or defense spending and the needs of the Cold War uh, were, were vital for the start of this industry. Now, you talk about the importance of startups to American capitalism, particularly in the, let's say, the last few decades. Um, there's a startup phenomenon, a uniquely American kind of thing, and it happened much more, let's say, in the last 20, 30 years than it did in the previous 100 years or so? Well, I mean, I think startups overall uh, have always happened in terms of entrepreneurs founding companies that certainly are very much a part of the American DNA. What's happened over the last 20 or 30 years, however, are these companies get very big, very fast. And one of the reasons is uh, the network. And, you know, the network has these things called network effects. And many of these companies um, going from the early embryonic period to companies worth $50 billion, $100 billion within a decade uh, has just, it's unprecedented and obviously uh, is a incredible phenomenon to behold. But you can trace it all the way back to the mid-70s when Apple and Microsoft were founded and how transformative um, this particular type of activity is. The largest market cap companies in the United States now largely have been venture-backed. Well, you describe another period uh, where finance is very important, where uh, high-yield bonds help finance people and the advent of private equity and so forth. How important do you think all of that was to the growth of American capitalism? In the 80s, what you saw was the rise of junk bond financing, but I don't think it was necessarily a catalyst for new industries. What it really was was a reaction to the era of conglomerates in the late 60s all the way through the 70s, where you'd have mishmash of uh, assets coupled under these large industrial giants. And I think to, to separate that out and make it more efficient, you had the rise of junk bond financing that was able to, in effect, take over these large corporations, strip out assets that were underperforming or didn't quite belong. Um, it was exactly, in my view, high yield financing used for uh, leverage buyouts was the opposite of venture financing. So venture financing is at the incubation period of companies whereas private equity is, in a sense, the undertaker of American capitalism. Now, the internet has come along in the last 20-plus years, 25 years, and smartphones. How important is, has the internet been to the growth of American capitalism and now smartphones, the ubiquitous smartphones that everybody has? Well, the internet has been transformative. I mean, you only need to look at you know, the largest companies in the United States today, and they're largely companies either in computing or in, inter or in the internet. Um, you look at Amazon, Facebook, um, Google, NVIDIA, um, you know, company after company, um, companies that were founded 7, 10, 15 years ago that are worth tens of billions of dollars or hundreds of billions of dollars. In addition, I think the smartphone 
is one of those things that's made in China. You know, it's a, it's a new type of economic organization, if you will, where um, the largest market cap company in the world, Apple, doesn't make the product in the United States at all. And it's been just as much a great benefit to China as, as it has been to the United States. You know, if you asked in 2000, who was the expert in electronics in Asia, people would have pointed to Japan or maybe to Korea. And today that's no longer the case. The other thing to remember, you know, if you take my family, for instance, in 1984, when we had left India, we didn't, we didn't have a landline in our home. Uh, but if you look at the vast majority of people in India today that have phones, they have never had landline telephones. They just skipped right to mobile devices. And at the same time, the smartphone is something that allowed most Indians to also skip computers altogether. You know, the first time most Indians accessed the web was on their smartphone. So they've never had a memory of accessing the web through laptops or desktops. So it had multiple benefits, uh, both for China and for India. Having studied 400 years of American capitalism in your book, Americana, a 400-year history of American capitalism, would you think that American capitalism is going to prosper and, and, and do well in the next 50 years or so compared to Chinese form of capitalism? How do you compare the two? I know you didn't study uh, Chinese capitalism, but as an observer of what China is doing, you've mentioned it. How do you compare Chinese capitalism and its prospect over the next 50 years to, say, American capitalism? Well, I will tell you, I'm, I'm very, very worried about the prospects for not just American capitalism, but America on the whole. And in terms of its comparisons to China, you know, China has, I would say, a different form of capitalism, which is a much more state-directed capitalism. And they're using the full power of the state to organize uh, themselves and not just leaving it entirely to the market, which is ironic because you have a communist country that knows exactly when to use the levers of the free market and when to use the full power of the state. And that's something that I think we've lost in America. And so in my view, if China decides to electrify and decides to address something like, let's say, climate change, they're going to do so very rapidly. You know, China today doesn't have really Chinese branded cars that they export. But tomorrow, if they decide that they're going to completely leapfrog, just like they did with the, the smartphone, that they're going to leapfrog that type of manufacturing altogether and be the leader in electric cars, I think they will. I think that they have, have shown a demonstrable competence over the past 20 years. Uh, and, and, you know, I think that America is certainly going to have its work cut out for it. Uh, in, in meeting this challenge. Okay, well, I want to thank you for a very interesting conversation. We've been in conversation with Boo Srinivasan, and who's written an extraordinarily interesting book about American capitalism. Thank you very much for being in conversation with us today. Thank you, David. Thank you for having me on. On behalf of the New York Historical Society, thank you for joining us for another episode of For the Ages, a history podcast hosted by David Rubenstein. We hope you enjoyed it and come back for more. Thanks for your support. You can share your thoughts at public.programs at nyhistory.org.